This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. It will be a long time coming, but the Ford PCs at Queen's Park have committed to giving nursing home residents in Ontario four hours of direct care every day. It's something long-term care stakeholders have been calling for for years. But there's a catch. This promise won't be fulfilled until 2024-25. So better late than never? Or is this just cover because the governing Tories have done little to prepare for the second wave of COVID-19? And have long-term care residents been given high-dose flu shots first, as was promised by the governing PCs? Libby Snymer asked these questions of our Zoomer squad. On Monday, she was joined by Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, acting chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. As you know, uh, residents currently get about two and three quarter hours per day of, of care, and that's on an average. There's uh, many who get less. Uh, so uh, four is certainly needed, uh, but it also means doubling the amount of care, which means, I would think, doubling the number of staff. And how are they going to do that? That's the, the real question. Not should it be done? Yes. Can it be done? Uh, can it be done without more plans than just money? I'm not sure. David? Once again, I think we're uh, the government's uh, a victim of its own very flawed communications on this. They've never distinguished between short-term fixes that are needed to save lives now during the pandemic, which everybody would have accepted as short-term emergency and not business as usual. We've got to do these measures right this minute. And part two, we're fixing the longer uh, term. I'm not saying that it takes four years to hire 10,000 more workers. And maybe, maybe it does. Uh, what are they doing right now? What are they doing longer? And they've never really separated those two so as to give you the confidence that they have plans, uh, you know, for both scenarios. How are we going to prevent a, another tragedy, Peter? Well, you know what, Libby, you, you're absolutely right. They they have a plan, and um, it, it's very, you know, in keeping with what we've been saying over these past weeks, um, they just are not getting it out. They... they um, you know, I had to dig deep to find it, and it's it's excellent. It's recruit, retrain, retain, and train new workers, implement the flu immunization, maintain strong public health measures, identify and manage and quickly prevent COVID outbreaks. They have it all, and they're just not getting it out there. And when they do get it out there, they're um, adding that it won't be around till 2024 and, and just sort of softening what what is actually a good plan, but no one knows about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Speaking, you mentioned you mentioned flu vaccinations. Now, anecdotally, we are hearing uh, about shortages or distribution problems, or distribution problems in certain channels. Uh, has anybody heard about vaccination in long-term care homes? I mean, they were supposed to get first dibs. 
I would assume we might have heard if they hadn't been there rolling out, they certainly promised that they would be the first to get the high dose. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they've, uh, I think they, they said at one point, one of the, one of the doctors in charge said they'd never seen so much demand for the flu shot. So, um, I, I suppose the worry was that they wouldn't have enough of it because everyone this year is, is going out to, uh, to get a shot. I, I, I know people who, who have been skeptical in years past about getting one are going this year. So, um, maybe it's just, uh, the demand is exceeding supply. A lot went to doctors' offices based on what they did last year, and a lot of doctors aren't even giving flu shots this year. And and I imagine people are less willing to go to their doctors for a flu shot, you know, rather than their local pharmacy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it it sounds like the distribution is is kind of messed up, but you know, in terms of the supply. But right now, I mean, I can imagine how upsetting it is. People who made appointments in advance uh, have are having their appointments canceled because the pharmacies don't have supply. And, and logic would dictate that the volume would be in the farm. I mean, you, you know, got so many neighborhood points of contact with pharmacies where you can dis- dispense the, uh, in, in our local pharmacy, I went in, I was, I got the high dose. They didn't have any of the regular dose, nothing, zero. And, um, so that's I think a switch. That, <laughs> that, that, no, they only had the high dose, but, but, uh, not the regular. And I do think you're right, Libby. I think that, uh, I can't criticize, only one of us can criticize how many vaccines did you order because that's sort of a crystal ball and it's, it's easy to, you know, criticize it. But if they can't even distribute what they did order, that's another problem. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Fightbacks Monday, Zoomer Squad. By the way, when the Ontario budget came down on Thursday, there was no costing out of the plan for increased direct care for nursing home residents. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Did you get an extra hour of sleep after the time change last weekend, or did you just get up at your usual time? The fallout of the return to standard time has had serious repercussions. Research shows with the sun setting an hour earlier, personal injury collisions between 5 and 8 p.m. dramatically increase in the month following the November time change. The reason? People will be heading home in darkness with reduced visibility, when only a few days earlier, many were still commuting in daylight. Toronto police kicked off a week-long traffic pedestrian safety campaign this past Monday, dubbed Focused on Vulnerable Road Users. With a spotlight on the big four driver behaviors, distracted driving, aggressive driving, impaired driving, and speeding. On Monday, Libby was joined by Toronto Police Sergeant Jason Kraft of Traffic Services and Dr. Patricia Lakin Thomas, Associate Professor in the Department of Biology at York University. Those people who do have to follow their social clock, meaning the clock on the wall, and get up at a particular time to get to work and uh, get the kids to school uh, will be feeling maybe a little bit jet-lagged for a short time in the fall. Uh, Today, when we've uh, had the clocks fall back, we know that it's a lot worse in the spring when you have to spring forward, and the uh, accident rates and the acute health events like heart attacks and strokes... um, 
we have a bigger uh, spike in the spring because that's actually harder on our bodies than the fall change is. But still, um, you know, uh, we are spending more time in the dark, most people. And well, it's suddenly it's been, dark when you, when you leave work. Um, I found this morning, of course, it's more light in the morning because we've moved to standard time. Um, it was light when I got up instead of being dark, which it's been for the last couple of weeks. So you're just shifting the, the uh, light forward or backward. Of course, we'll get the same amount of daylight. We're not actually changing the sun. Um, but what we are doing is changing our social time and how we relate to the sun time. And what we've done now is we've moved to standard time, which is putting our body clock and our brain clock, which set to the sunrise, we're now putting ourselves better in sync with the day-night cycle with the sun than when we're on daylight saving time. So the fall change is actually easier on our body because we're putting our our internal body clock closer to the sun clock, which is what we naturally would like to do. Uh, Sergeant Kraft, are you expecting um, more problems in the evening hours uh, that were light until the weekend? Historically, I would say yes. However, this year, as we all know through this pandemic, is different than any other year. However, our information is that we will historically see an increase of approximately 30% in Toronto of pedestrian-related collisions that are reported and investigated by the Toronto Police. Uh, This year, again, is different. We're seeing lower traffic congestion and volume. Our fatalities are down in numbers. Um, So I'm hoping that trend continues and we don't see a spike or increase in um, serious injuries or deaths in relation to uh, collisions on our roads. Well, that's interesting. So it's worse in Toronto than the average for the province, which is uh, about 20%. I don't know that it's worse in Toronto or that we're just looking at different time frames. Uh, again, this year is different than any other year, but um, certainly we have seen almost a 50% reduction in our um, most serious collisions reported in Toronto uh, in comparison to years past. Can you give us any hint about where uh, drivers have to be extra careful? Yeah, certainly. They have to be extra careful where the arterial roads are wide, they're multi-lane streets, they carry high volumes of traffic, and the speeds are higher. When the speeds are increased, any vulnerable road user involved in a collision with a vehicle traveling at higher speeds will most likely result in um, a higher severity of injury. Okay, now I know the onus is always on the driver uh, driving two tons of steel, but I do have to say one thing about those mid-block collisions, and I certainly understand sometimes there is a very long way between lights, and particularly for older people who may not be that mobile, I, I get that, but I have to say that that just driving around, there, I see an increase in people walking around with headphones and they don't even bother to turn around to see, you know, if there's a car coming. And, and um, I don't know, uh, is that just a, a perception of mine or is do you find that, Sergeant Kraft? Uh, anecdotally, uh, yes. Um, we want to make sure that all road users are always aware of their surroundings. They identify their own personal risks. And those risks increase when they're engaged in mid-block crossings or when vehicles are turning in intersections. Um, But certainly, uh, we all have a part to play, and road safety is a shared responsibility. 
Sergeant Jason Kraft of Traffic Services, and Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas, Associate Professor in the Department of Biology at York University. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on Monday, the first workday after the time change. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break... The U.S. election plays out just the way Fight Back's strategy panel calls it. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. What a week it was in the U.S. and around the world as we all watched the votes being tabulated in the presidential election. The actual election was Tuesday, although some 100 million voters cast ballots in early voting. That number represents three-quarters of the entire vote total in the 2016 presidential election. Republican incumbent Donald Trump doesn't want all of these votes counted and early on Wednesday claimed fraud on the nation and a plan to take the election to the U.S. Supreme Court, a claim he continued to repeat on Twitter and in a nationwide address Thursday evening. No wonder the American Psychological Association reports that 7 in 10 Americans have found this election to be a significant source of stress. There's also a massive fear of poll predictions after pollsters failed to pick up on Donald Trump's late surge in 2016. Prior to Tuesday, the polls predicted a landslide Biden victory. On the day of the election, Libby spoke about the issues around the U.S. vote with our strategy panelists, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. I don't think that they're wrong. I think that we just have to be careful when it comes to polls, even our polls. Um, you know, people are... Uh, just the way things have evolved over the last little while, a number of decades, quite frankly, when, when of course, everybody used to have a landline and, and pollsters used to call the landline and, you know, most people would be, would be, would, would respond and, and everything. So polling back in the day was a little bit more, uh, precise in some ways, but now people don't have landlines. They have cell phones, uh, online, you know, polling is, is predisposed to folks who are maybe younger versus the ones that are maybe a bit more, a bit older. So polling is always a bit, Difficult nowadays to uh, to predict, but that said, if a number of polls, uh, a number of pollsters, all have a certain trend uh, in mind, as we see in the U.S., then then obviously I think Biden does have the hand. Although you know what, I just I just don't know with respect to uh, the, the the what they call the shy or the hidden Trump supporters. You know, the fact that he gets thirty thousand people at rallies is not insignificant. The fact that he's got these organic rallies that that pop up on you know boat rallies and car rallies and and whatnot. Those are things that you have to sort of not, you can't ignore them because that is organic kind of rallying and enthusiasm that is far more intense than what, than what Biden has. So I wouldn't put anything past the fact that there's a lot of folks who might not have said yes to voting for Trump by way of a poll who are showing up. And we'll know today if the lineups are excessive, that's a good sign for Trump. The wisdom is that Republicans are voting today and more Democrats voted 
early. This business of a shy Trump vote, I mean, all those uh, thousands of people at those rallies certainly aren't shy. I, I would have thought that people might be shyer about saying they're going to vote for Joe Biden, uh, especially given the reaction of some Trump enthusiasts. Charles? Well, a big voter turnout usually indicates a big desire for change. And so the question is, can Trump activate millions of voters who have never voted before, who didn't vote in 2016? That really is his last chance, because if that's the case, that would indicate that a good number of pollsters are off and off consistently, as was the case in 2016. That said, this is no 2016. The Electoral College map, which is what decides who will be the president, is definitively leaning towards Biden. Um, There's some talk that Biden could win Georgia. And if Biden wins Georgia, Trump can take Nevada, he can take Arizona, he can take Texas, he can take Florida, he can take North Carolina, he can even take Pennsylvania, and he loses. That's how much the, the, the Electoral College map is stacked against Donald Trump at the moment. Karen, it seems to me that the the Democrats are also counting on people who've never voted before, younger people who would be more inclined to vote for the Biden ticket. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Libby. There's no question that the Democrat strategy has been to get people that are Democrat out to vote when they didn't actually in 2016 for Hillary for whatever reason. Um, many of that support didn't actually show up at the polls. And I think there are a couple interesting dynamics here at play that weren't in play in 2016. Uh, Number one, as Charles referenced, there is a huge voter turnout. 100 million people have voted. And throughout all the polling that was done, there it the the consistency of people who've already made up their mind, there was a very, very small undecided vote. Like the voters that are undecided, that was... Most people had decided how they were going to vote. It was just a matter of when they were going to vote and how they were going to vote. And so that that would lead me to believe that since Joe Biden has been leading in decided vote support, that the people who actually said they'd vote for Joe actually came out and did. And I think the other thing that is different this this election is that, uh, you know, in 2016, Trump played a very smart strategic game of knowing he wasn't going to win the popular vote, which he didn't, but he he was he was strategic in showing up in states that mattered for electoral college votes, and he won those. But this is a very different election, and the Democrats understand the importance of campaigning in those states. And so I think that the Democrats have run a smarter campaign. I don't know if they have a better candidate, but they've run a smarter campaign for sure. And there is a desire for change in America. That was Karen Stintz, along with John Capobianco and Charles Byrd, Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel in conversation with Libby on the day of the U.S. election. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. The good news, it seems everyone in Ontario wants to be immunized against the flu this year. The bad news is that there is a shortage of the flu vaccine, at least for now, in the pharmacies. After some people complained that their appointments at Rexall were cancelled because of a lack of supply, the Premier responded by calling out Rexall, scolding them for booking appointments for flu shots they don't have in stock. Fightback invited someone from Rexall to come on and respond, but they declined. We did gather a panel of experts to talk about the shortage. 
Libby was joined on Tuesday by pharmacist John Papasturgio, who owns two shoppers drug marts on the Danforth, Justin Bates, chief executive officer of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a Toronto-based family physician. Well, the number comes straight from the government's mouth, actually. That is from the health critic who said that the demand had gone up by 500%. And what's concerning is that Ontario did what Ontario should have done, which is listen to the data. The data basically said the demand had gone up by 20%. And what did they do? They raised the number of doses purchased by the ministry from what 4.4 to 5.4 million doses. They went right with that guideline. And what's happening is that because Toronto is a hot spot for COVID-19 and Ontario is generally a hot spot province, That has raised the demand for the flu shot after the study in Brazil showed a 20% reduction in deaths from COVID-19 in individuals who had received the flu shot. That number seems to be good. And and frankly, that that's good news if you have more people getting the flu shot. Justin, uh, uh, 300,000 doses last year going to waste. Uh, Do we have any idea how much taxpayer money that adds up to? What's what's the wholesale cost of a flu shot? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the exact costs are, but certainly going through pharmacies has been proven to reduce spoilage and wastage by utilizing the pharmacy wholesale and distribution network. And we want to make sure that we are working together with government, that we're protecting public health and making this program successful by vaccinating as many people as possible this is a good problem to have, as you mentioned on the outset. Demand has uh, soared, and we're doing our best to manage patients effectively and safely by booking appointments. I would say that the expected uh, orders did not necessarily come through for all pharmacies, so all of the bookings that were made for patients was based on what pharmacists expected to receive in terms of supply. Okay. Uh, John, did you get the supply that you expected? Yeah, hey, Libby. Yeah, I mean, I did up to this point. I think uh, this is actually the first time that I'm out now. So I still have uh, seniors high-dose vaccine available. I have quite a bit of that. Uh, Where I've uh, run out is the uh, quadrivalent vaccine that uh, non-seniors would get. And this is really the first time this entire season that I'm I'm out. But to put it into perspective, in a busy kind of year, my busiest pharmacy will give about 1,500 blue shots. That same pharmacy right now is uh, approaching about 5,000, and we're only about three or four weeks in. So uh, I think Iris's number is dead on. We're looking about five times uh, what we usually see in traffic. So the message is out, get your flu shot, get it early. Uh, That being said, uh, I think we do need to kind of resolve what's going to happen with quadrivalent vaccine over the next little while. Iris, are you confident that it's the demand next year will be the same as this year? Why would you think that? It will be at least as much next year. I don't think COVID-19 is going away anytime soon. And as far as the vaccinations for COVID-19, you know, the federal government has now invested in over a dozen different vaccinations for COVID-19, each of which has its own safety profile, its own efficacy, and its own dosing schedules. So I'm, I'm concerned that we could be in deep doo-doo unless we have systems that are documenting for seniors and adults especially exactly who has had what vaccine and when. Without that information and, and organized in a way that everyone can access it, we may have a serious problem on our hands. 
Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a Toronto-based family doctor, pharmacist John Papasturgio, and Justin Bates, Chief Executive Officer of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Pat in Toronto, who phoned about his preference for a year-round permanent time. We need to keep daylight saving. Otherwise, what's going to happen? It's going to be very light at 4 o'clock in the morning, and it's going to be getting dark before 9 o'clock at night in the summertime. And I, I lived in Indonesia, uh, where the difference between winter and summer, as, as far as light, is 15 minutes, um, and really missed the, the summer daylight. But I also took a cruise up the coast of Norway, and you get up to a place called North Cape, which is well up in the Arctic Circle. They are either gaining or losing 12 minutes of daylight per day. So at this time of year, they're losing an hour of light every five days. That does it for today's best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.